So this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is the Rattlecast for uh, for Thursday, August 27th. This is uh, Richard Gilbert's on the line. We're going to be talking to him in just a little bit. Um, he's a uh, he's going to be talking about his book, Poetry as Consciousness. It's a really fascinating subject. It's going to be a little different than the normal shows because it's going to be a lot more discussion and, um, and less poetry. A lot of the shows are just poetry readings with a little bit of discussion. This is a lot of discussion uh, with poetry haiku mostly thrown in. Um, and if you'd like to join in the open mic at the end after we're done with Richard in about an hour, all you have to do is send me a chat message on Skype. Send it to live uh, rattle poetry. I'll reply, and I will let you know that uh that i've got you lined up and then i will give you a give you a ring when we're ready to go we already have uh, kitty carpenter who uh is in the chat room too um she's going to be joining us on the open mic at the end of the show i have eight poets lined up for the for the uh, pre-recorded open mic session if you'd like to do that you can go to rattle.com slash rattlecast and check out uh the link there to submit files ahead of time and then we'll read what you're doing uh, whatever poetry you send in. And also, there's a chat window on YouTube, and if you go to the chat and ask any questions for Richard, I'll pass those along, and we can make this as interactive as possible. That's how we always want to do it at Rattle. We love making poetry accessible. That's really what we're here for. Um, to start off on these episodes, I always like to start with some kind of uh, poem, just to kick it off, because every you know poems are all different, and we don't want to fixate on one style or Poetry. So I was thinking about uh, showing you this book. This is Voyage of the Sable Venus by Robin Cost Lewis. We interviewed Robin uh, last week in Studio City for issue number, what's going to be 66. That's our winner issue coming up. And it was just the most amazing interview. It was actually Alan who did it. And uh, Robin Cost Lewis is just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. We're talking later about... Um, poetry is consciousness and the way that poetry expands your consciousness. And I kind of felt like just sitting in the presence of Robin Cost Lewis, that that was an expanded consciousness right there. And, um, and this is her book. Um, I saw Robin first way back, maybe in 2016 or 15, she was reading at the Southern California poetry festival and she was just amazing there. So I went up to her and asked if we could do an interview. We've been kind of working out when we could do it. And since we have, uh, the interviews always have to match the theme of the issue. It's been a while before we could actually fit her in, but it's going to come up in this, this winter. And this is her book, Voyage of the Sable Venus. I'm going to read the opening poem, which uh, kind of gives you an, an idea of the book. This is Plantation. And imagine, we're going to be talking later about the way that um, poetry exists uh, between the, the real life and the dreaming life. And, and, and feel how that does that with this poem. This is Plantation by Robin Cost Lewis. And then one morning we woke up, embracing the bare floor of a large cage. To keep you happy, I decorated the bars. Because you had never been hungry, I knew I could tell you the black side of my family-owned slaves. I realized this is perhaps the one reason why I love you. Because I told you this, and you still wanted to kiss me. We laughed when I said plantation, fell into our chairs when I said cane. There were fingers on the floor and the split bodies of women who'd been torn apart by horses during the Inquisition. You'd said, we'll be damned, well, I'll be damned. Every now and then you'd change from a prancing black buck into a small, high, yellow girl, pigtailed, patent leather, eyes spinning gossamer, begging for egg salad and banana pudding. Or just as quickly you'd become the girl's mother, pulling yourself away from yourself. 
because my whole head was covered with a heaving beehive. You thought I didn't notice. I noticed. I cried honey. And then you were 14 and you had grown a glorious steel cock under your skirt. To brag, you rubbed yourself against me. Then your tongue was inside my mouth and I wanted to say, please ask me first, but it was your tongue. So who cared suddenly about your poor manners? We had books and a waterfall was falling in the corner. I didn't tell you I couldn't remember what that thing was you said to me once, that tender thing you'd said I should never forget. The moment you said it, I forgot it. I wondered if you thought we were lost. We weren't lost. We were lost. And meanwhile, all I could think about were the innumerable ways you, you, I would have loved to have eaten you, how being devoured can make one cry. And I hoped you liked the fresh, pleasant taste of juiced cane. You pulled my pubic bone toward you. I didn't say it's still broken. I didn't tell you there's still this crack. It was sore, but I stayed silent because you were smiling. You said the bars look pretty, baby, then rubbed your hind legs up against me. So once again, that, that was the opening poem to um, um, this book, Voyage of the Sable Venus by Robin Cost Lewis. And it's really, it's one of those books where I read it straight through for the first time, about two weeks ago, leading up to the interview, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I really recommend reading this book. Um, and that'll be our introductory poem for today. Um, uh, now, our poet today, as I already mentioned, is uh, Richard Gilbert. And um, this is his book on the screen now. This is Poetry is Consciousness, Haiku Forest, Space of Mind, and an Ethics of Freedom. And uh, here's Richard's bio. Uh, Richard Gilbert is a tenured professor of American literature at the universe, er, at the Graduate School of Social and Cultural Sciences, Kunamoto University. In the 1980s, he studied with the beat poets Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, and others at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. After receiving an MA in contemplative psychology, he worked as a clinical outpatient psychotherapist. He received his PhD in poetics and depth psychology in 1990, studying archetypal psychology with James Hillman at the Union Institute and University. His book, Poems of Consciousness, Contemporary Japanese and English Language Haiku and Cross-Cultural Perspective, was awarded the HSA 2009 Mildred Canterman Award for Haiku Criticism and Theory. In August 2013, the Disjunctive, the disjunctive Dragonfly, a new theory of English language haiku, was awarded the Touchstone Prize in Criticism. In 2017, he co-authored Earth and Sunrise, a course for English language haiku study. And I think I should read the blurb on the back of this book, too, um, just to let you know what we're getting into here. Uh, we need poetry more than ever, if only to recognize ourselves. Richard Gilbert's poetry as consciousness reminds us that indeed, at a fundamental level, we are poetry. That co-creative poetic space of mind is a primary and essential expression of our being human in the world. Poetry as consciousness is sublime, a compelling picture of poetry as a language of creative substance and alchemy of mind and soul. As Gilbert peers further through the veil to give vocabulary to the elusive haiku genre within the context of its role as a cognitive poetics, I believe we will continue to find how much we need this work and others in a like vein as we explore the new interior frontiers of the 21st century. And so this is a book of criticism, uh, of haiku and um, and poetry in general, it, it sort of it sort of forms the space that poetry exists as a an art form. 
Um, and let's bring in our guest right now. This is uh, Richard Gilbert. Say hi to everybody. Richard, you're on camera now. Hey, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for, thanks for being here. This is a very different experience for me. Uh, I live in Japan. I rarely get to America, which is where I am now. I'm uh, being hosted in Palmdale, California. Uh, I'd like to thank Tim for uh, asking me to be on the Rattlecast and also to speak to a lot of people who may not be so familiar with haiku uh, in the English language form, especially these days, which has uh, moved quite a bit far away from the old idea of a 575 image poem. And we'll probably talk a little about that. But uh, Tim's going to try to ask me questions that will, will keep me on, on track. Um, I think I'm more of a writer than a speaker. Uh, when I present, I usually use PowerPoint, you know, and I can, I can keep, uh, keep centered that way. And this topic is, uh, it's a bit obtuse. Uh, the idea of uh, what I'd like to start with as just a put the dessert, you know, before the main course. Uh, this is what really started me off in the book uh, that I started writing a couple of years ago. Uh, Tim mentioned Poetry is Consciousness, and it's this uh, small poem or really uh, kind of epigram by uh, Antonio Machado. It was uh, published in 1983, and it, it goes like this. Between living and dreaming, there is a third thing. Guess it. Between living and dreaming... There is a third thing. Guess it. And it's it's this mystery or question or even uh, maybe goad, uh, playful goad from Machado of what is this third thing uh, between living and dreaming? And that that set me off on probably a, a something that was a feeling that was hard to describe, which is that haiku in the way that they use language disjunctively cutting through time and space very quickly in a very short amount of space and time, very with very few words, they create this third space that Machado alludes to, at least I feel so. And I found that there were um, in, in depth psychology and other poets writings, uh, there was also this idea of a third space, which I began to call haiku sanctuary. Um, and uh, Jung talked about this as temenos, but I'm, I'm going to stop there and see if see if Tim can ask you some questions and well, get going. Well, I think to start, maybe maybe we should just okay. just to, to give a frame for everybody. Let's talk a little bit about your background because it's a really interesting you know life story you have. Uh, we interviewed you, by the way, in, in a rattle number forty-seven right. for everybody who doesn't know. So you can hear a whole lot about haiku. Really, everything I know about haiku myself, I learned from Richard in this one. Uh, I think it was like a three-hour interview that we sh- shrunk down. It was really a really amazing sort of condensed yep. learning experience but for me personally and, and hopefully for everybody who read that issue which is you should buy a copy soon because it's one of the it's going to be it's about to sell out so so buy a copy soon but anyway so you started out as a beat uh you know following the beats and then you went into psychology and somehow you ended up in haiku so can you just explain that that journey for you how and you ended up in japan too so how did that all work out yeah yeah uh, it worked out pretty well in the end um, until I, you know, bite the bucket um, or, or worse for um, I think I think like maybe many people who are, you know, who are listening, that there is some sense of wanting to write and writing poetry, possibly that happened very early on. 
Uh, I think I can remember writing poems about infinity and mathematics, like when I was in junior high, you know, just uh, had these fantasies. I think I think it was in high school. I was kind of right at the end of the hippie era. I was too confused to really understand what was going on. But um, I really felt that I, I just wanted to keep writing and uh, became a bohemian person to do that, which is to have a lot of time and space and just to, just to read and think. And, uh, you know, working any odd job. And uh, a friend told me about Naropa Institute at that time, an unaccredited school, and that I should go there. I didn't really know much about it, but I found out that Allen Ginsberg and Waldman, uh, Larry Fagan, uh, Ansem Hollow were teaching there. And, uh, yeah, I was drawn there, and I was also drawn to the psychology program. And to make a long story short, uh, I studied haiku under Patricia Donegan, who had been in the Peace Corps, and she'd been in Korea and Japan. And uh, her her idea of teaching haiku was to gather a number of translations of a single poem, and the, the different translators had translated that poem differently. And each translation had something unique about it. And altogether, they seemed to indicate that the, in the original Japanese, the, the poem was much more multi-layered and you know had a lot more going on with it. And that, that got me, that piqued my interest. Um, I, I don't, I studied, I went to the Naropa to study with the beats, not so much because of the beat aspect as that they were living notable poets. And I wanted, I didn't want to study sort of poetry analytically or through some kind of theory. And I wanted to meet poets who were writing. And so that's, that's the short well, story. It's interesting that you didn't there. want to study poetry analytically because you're the most analytical poet I know now. I mean, there's, there's nobody that I'm familiar with who, who writes, um, you know, more critically about yeah. poetry. I, I can say one thing about that, which is um, I've published a lot of haiku. I haven't published a lot of longer poems, partly because I, I tend to put them in a drawer and I'm not very ambitious about sending things out. And I, I like to learn new things. So I'm, I'm really input oriented. And I, as soon as something's done, I tend to go to the next. It's pretty easy to send out really short poems. Um, I, I don't I think that it's because I was only, you know, re reading and thinking and uh, I didn't have any plan for like the first, you know, up until about age 42. And I had no plan to be an academic. And uh, I but I think all of that interest and, you know, sort of uh, pondering and contemplating uh, led me to think about things in, in a different way, you could say, or when it came time to where I, I saw that I had an opportunity to have this new career in Japan, I was just going to go there for a year and study haiku. And I'd gotten a PhD, which was non-vocational, uh, just I wanted to write a book. So mixing or combining depth psychology and poetics. And, uh, you know, you can't get a, you can't get a professorship with that, I think, not in America, mm -hmm. but uh, things happened for me in Japan. I met other professors. They encouraged me. And uh, I actually found out that I, I was the only person really living in Japan. I, I, I was married in the first year I was there. My wife's Japanese, so I was able to stay and then get the visas and such to stay. But no one, I was really shocked that no one was studying modern contemporary poetry in Japan. Everyone's interested in the classic sort of thing. So feudal Japan, Basho and you know, then uh, even up to the early modern of uh, Shiki, for instance. But what about, you know, the 20th century? What about post-war uh, poetry? But especially what about those who poets who were alive? So I got into this idea of uh, interviewing, you know, uh, you know, poets who are notable 
and finding out uh, more about uh, their biography and their critical ideas and translating their poems. And what I, what I learned was that uh, they had a lot to say. It was a lot of really incredible ideas. So I've incorporated, they really inspired me. And uh, that's, that's what I've been doing for 20, over 22 years now. So it's a, a large part of my work is you know, I've founded a translation team and we publish books on Kaneko Tota. I should mention if someone's interested in the, hearing some of these interviews or excerpts on a website called it's gendaihaiku.com, G-E-N-D-A-I, haiku, one word. Dot com. So you'll find a bunch of interviews there with a yeah, English and I'll German subtitles. I'll put that link in the show notes after the, the stream's over. Um, I've been to that website. I've listened to everything sure. there. It's a great website because yeah. there's really – which segues into what uh, we should also um, set up too is that haiku is just the most misunderstood form of poetry in uh, North America, it, you know, I think. Um, and, and so yeah. it, it really is. I think people – you know, just the average – there's this conception of the way it's taught in school, which is completely wrong and has nothing to do with actual haiku, the, the whole five, seven, five thing. And, um, and there's this, this, right. this sort of haiku the the, even among sort of regular poets, I think the conception of haiku is stuck in like the 19th century. You know, it's, it's almost like we don't think haiku um, had modernism <laughs> and, and it did. And so if you go to that Jendai Haiku website, you see the, the real power of, of modern, actual, contemporary haiku. Uh, but do you want to talk a little bit about, about what haiku is, just for people who don't understand the, the genre itself? Um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a long story. And I think before I talk too much, I also would like to, like, like to show some haiku. I think you're going to... If you can, if you can get to the article that's on the journal under the Basho, that's that online uh, article. So anyone could, anyone can download this article. It's a PDF. And my, my friend, uh, Hancha Teki like organized it and made it into a PDF very beautifully. Um, I'm going to, there's a, several haiku selections, uh, on page seven, it starts with a presentation okay, called I'll, distance. I'll pull that up when I can. It might take a and little I, while for me to find it, but I'll find it. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to start just in, in terms of trying to answer your question with a a couple caveats, but also um, kind of part. I sent my stance on being a, a critic or at least a commentator about haiku, which is that it, it really comes from appreciation. I'm I'm really you know excellent haiku do, do move me and uh, they stay with me. And I also found that when I when I looked at quite a number of them and gathered them together, you know, cut them out of, on paper, put them on the floor and started to arrange them, I saw like themes came out or ideas came out or techniques came out. And they so my work is really coming from the poetry. And I, I like to always go to poems and as, as a kind of base, as a ground and as a fruition. Uh, what I have to say about them is more an appreciation. I, I don't think it's a theory at all. It's not, you know, I don't have a theory of haiku. I, I'm interested in inspiring poets to look, look into it, you know, look into the genre because it, it can add a lot of depth uh, when using uh, a very highly, you know, with great brevity, with a very concise poem. So, we, you know, I know that you, uh, in your last Rattlecast, you had the, talking about Insta poetry, and you wrote an essay, which is, I think, it, that calling in, I think you said, if I might paraphrase, that Insta poetry is anti poetry. Yeah, I think, well, I, I just think it's I'm not gonna, completely yeah, okay. different because I think it's not trying to 
forge that ground of new creation, I guess you could say. It's, it's repackaging things that have already been created, I guess is the simplest way to say it. And Which doesn't mean, of course, that, that Instagram poets all do that or they're not real poets. They do that in their real, you know, they write books. And, and Pavana Reddy wrote a great book that has a lot of metaphor in it that's that's creative and new. Right. But um, but what sells on Instagram is, is I would say, the opposite of poetry is propaganda, actually. But, but um, Instagram poetry okay. is just something different. And um, so anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so one thing there is I, I think that I wish that there could be some kind of mo- a rapprochement between haiku and whatever Insta poets are out there, you know, if, if we, we catch any of them. Because I think haiku do something that's really remarkable where you, where you can create a great depth and uh, an experience of a, a, a lasting ambiguity that's very tantalizing and nuanced uh, that really shifts your consciousness into a very interesting space. And in that sense, it's really not superficial. I, I don't think a super, a superficial haiku is not a haiku, you know, it's just not interesting. So, so to, to write in a haiku that's interesting means you have to have freshness, surprise, you're doing something interesting with language. Uh, there's some kind of unusual or new imagery in it. And it's quite hard to do in a short space. So why don't, why don't we just uh, yeah, take yeah, a look at it? So I'll read some from that. Right now. Okay, so um, what what are we trying to say here? Okay, so I'll just I'll just read from this article the last the sort of intro paragraph to this small section, and I, I wrote this. Um, you know, it's a bit hard to explain where I'm getting the quotations from, but some are from James Hillman, who's a he passed away a while ago, but he was a um, started the school of archetypal psychology, and I studied with him in my master, uh, doctoral work, and he had a big influence on me. He, uh, he actually used this phrase, um, intelligence of the heart is expressed by means of images, which are a third possibility between mind and world. So coming from this aspect of deaf psychology, you, you find us almost the exact same kind of idea as Machado stated. Um, and then I wrote, a poetic psychology of sanctuary may represent one way of formally regarding the hypotheticality that inheres within the conceptual architectures of excellent haiku as ways into visibility to experiencing this third thing. So I'm trying to somehow validate and make visible this feeling of this third world, you could say, or this third thing or space or architecture, however you design, uh, through the poems. So in this first grouping, I, I called it distance. And the first poem, I'll, I'll read them twice, I guess, it's easy. Two ballerinas in one skin, a newborn foal. Two ballerinas in one skin, a newborn foal. How dear materialize twilight. How dear materialize twilight. Night of small color, a part of the underworld becomes one heron. Night of small color, a part of the underworld becomes one heron. You whisper, just your sometimes. You whisper, just your sometimes. Pretty sure my red is your red. Pretty sure my red is your red. Her going in her coming, the rain before it falls. Her going in her coming, 
the rain before it falls. So th I think this is a these, this uh, small selection is a good example of what one way, one direction that haiku has gone uh, in the last uh, into the 21st century. Uh, these poems were published uh, around 2008-2009, so they're they're not too old. Tim, which of these poems, which which well, one the, kind of grabs um, your attention? For the first one, the metaphor is just so strong. You know, two ballerinas in one skin, a newborn foal, and that is such a perfect way to describe a newborn foal. You know, if you like, I will. The, the thing is, after reading that haiku, I will never see a pic or video or an actual newborn foal again the same way. So that's one that, right. that always stands out. The other one that always does is the which I think about all the time. It's pretty sure my red is your red, which I just love the you know, the mm -hmm. metaphysics of that. I guess you could say uh, it's just such an important right. concept about the way human and life and psychology works. Uh, so, so those are the two that stand out for me the most. But um, do I just explain, you know, just just for people who don't understand the the juxtaposition that is haiku? I have a um, I have a um, right sort right. of a whole I don't know personal cosmology I've been building about 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 poetry and what it does <laughs> yeah. through evolutionary biology okay. and things like that. And um, and I kind of feel like right. for a long time that um, the metaphor is like the mm. fundamental unit of of poetry which is the fundamental unit of creation because everything is a metaphor. And, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and this is something we, I mean, that's a very much part of, mm -hmm. uh, archetypal psychology is archetypal psychology also has this, uh, this sense, but oh, yeah, I think yeah, sure. just to stop you for a moment or before you continue is that we often, we, you know, in, in, in literature, in literary, in literary criticism or, uh, the definitions, uh, metaphor means something very specific, you know, using as something as something else. But I think the kind of metaphor you're talking about. Is well, a I think little a bit simile, that. you know, that's simile, like or like or as. A simile is a kind of metaphor, but metaphor is the whole package, I think. Um, but 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 the, the whole idea though is that is that creating a new awareness out of the chaos that, that you know reality is too complex to understand, and somehow we use language to make meaning out of the chaos of 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 conscious experience, and and that's how we understand things. Like if if you look at a chair. A chair is really a metaphor in a weird way because a, ch a chair is anything that, that has these same characteristics in common. And it kind of builds up over time what a chair means. And that's how we make words. That's how we make everything within our understanding. And so metaphor is the root of this kind of linguistic creation mm -hmm. that we do, which is so central to our experience of reality. And there's a really interesting way that haiku is sort of the – because it uses that juxtaposition of comparing two mm -hmm. things, it's sort of like – Every haiku is a metaphor almost, and it's a metaphor that pushes the boundaries of possibility as far as possible. At least the you know contemporary, well, old haiku too. Right. Um, you know, traditional haiku does the same thing in different ways, but um, but that's kind of what haiku does for me. It's sort of the 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 most right. um, discrete unit of this consciousness that evolves out of poetry in a really strange way. Right. That's that's my opinion, and, and, and that's why I think your book is so fascinating because that's what you you talk about. Uh, thank you. Uh, if I managed to, you know, get you interested or uh, if it made sense, uh, some of the things I was saying, I'm, I'm appreciative. Uh, it was really hard to write the book, and I, I think I, I need to improve it, actually. But I, something that, you're, that you said I would like to pick up on, and it's uh, the chair. 
mm-hmm. which I'm sitting in a chair. But it's, I know it's a chair partly because of all the other chairs that I've grown to know and love and sit in. But then there's also the, the, the quality of chairness, which could be a rock, could take on that quality when you sit on a rock and it becomes kind of a chair. And a throne is a chair, et cetera, and you can start to expand out. And, uh, of course, we have the word for chair. And when you start looking at that word and looking in different cultures, you, mm-hmm. you, you might get some very different images. And that's just an old story in poetry. Like, who's is everyone, when you say moon, you know, it's a different moon to everyone. And there's a subjectivity we all have. And yet there's a, um, what did um, Yuval Harari talk about? Um, a kind of a... Um, well, let's just say that we we hold certain certain general concepts in common, common enough that that our language communicates often internationally pretty well. Uh, but to go back to this idea of juxtaposition in a haiku, make it more concrete. I do think that the chair. OK, let me put it this way, that I think a good haiku is going to challenge the chairness of a chair. It's going to challenge. It's going to it's going to deform or erupt your habitual associations of language and image, but also of, mm-hmm. of consciousness concept, let's call it, or of, of familiar or habitual ideas. Okay, so let's like, take an example. I think the first example that you had, uh, that, that you read, you know, that you liked, the two ballerinas in one skin, a newborn foal. So now, what I like to do in talking about haiku is, I, I don't like to explain what they mean. I think that's up to the reader to determine and I don't I don't think any haiku or any decent haiku has one meaning and that's that's probably something that you, you maybe can't say or not you know not one say one clear meaning there is no one exactly clear meaning I think that there's this ambiguity in that a haiku is meant to be fragmentary as to meaning and the reader then completes her so the coherence of the haiku is happening in the reader's consciousness not just in the moment but as you read and reread and so I use a term called um, misreading mm-hmm. as meaning for haiku, because you read it the first time and it's like kind of what, you know, what was that? And then by the, it's so short that you're already reading it again and maybe getting a slightly different impression. And so it's just so short that, you know, you've probably read it or at least circulated in your brain pan in the word with the words and the ideas, you know, a number of times. And each time it's slightly shifting and changing. And I think if a haiku isn't really doing that, if it's just one shot, I got it. Um, yeah, you know, there's a few that are more like a, a POW type, but uh, this this kind of nuanced idea of misreading as meaning, I, I think, is quite important for haiku. So that is partly definitional, right? And it, how that misreading happens could be like a language play, but it also involves what I call disjunction and the and paradox. So in the example, uh, the first example. So you have the first part of this haiku is already a paradox, right? It's two ballerinas in one skin. So if you, if, when you get that halfway point in your reading, which takes about an instant, it's how do you have two in one, you know? How, how, and two ballerinas are two human beings, right? Well, how, how do these two human beings fit into one skin? So it, you know, you, I get an image of you know, ballerinas on a stage and they're in some kind of strange costumery. And so then you read the next part, which is you know, a newborn foal. Notice it, it doesn't say in a newborn foal or surrounding a mm-hmm. newborn foal or whatever. There's no, there, there's, no, there's no connection there grammatically. And that's the disjunctive aspect, I think, right? So you, in this case, there are juxtapositions, but there's not just one juxtaposition. It's, it's actually each, you know, with each word, you're, you're sort of adding another layer, a different kind of universe in a way. Now, in the end, um, 
I feel like this is about a newborn foal, but I, I also feel that somehow this author knows an awful lot about ballerinas too, and that there was some beautiful dance going on that's hard to imagine. You know, so it's it's still a bit ambiguous yet. This 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 sort of a combination of birth mm-hmm. and uh, the you know a horse, a colt, a colt or a, you know um, a newborn horse with the two ballerinas, the movement of the two ballerinas, very beautiful. But it, in the end, uh, it's 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 a it's a nuanced space which doesn't quite cohere literally, but it mm-hmm. isn't quite a fantasy, right? So it's between. So I, I, you know, the, the Machado phrase between living and dreaming, which would be between the chair is chairness. I know what a chair is, you know, I'm not really sure what this haiku is. And I also know what fantasy is. Fantasy is like I have a dream and there's a castle or something and there's, you know, uh, I don't know, Game of Thrones things going on or something. Now, in the in the second haiku, pretty sure my red is your red. I think this is where uh, this is a style of haiku, which we sometimes it's referred to as using psychological in-betweenness. And there's a term in Japanese for this called ma, which is uh, references the the space between things. But it can also be used as a sort of psychological in-betweenness is one aspect. It has a number of meanings, but uh, because ma is a nice short word, it's 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 somewhat of a loan word in haiku circles, but uh, it's nice to be able to name something, to, to name a, a feeling or a technique that comes from the haiku. So pretty sure my red is your red seems just like a statement or a sentence, right? It is grammatically correct, I think. But the the play between self and other, the question of uh, are the two reds the same or not? And you know that it's about relationship and you know it's asking a much deeper question is you know, are we on the same page or are, are, are we actually so different that we don't even really know if mm-hmm. our reds are the same at all? Um, the other interesting thing about this haiku, two points, is one is if you if you change it to another color, that's interesting. It doesn't work at all. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, right. Change it to blue. Like pretty sure yeah. my blue hmm. is your blue. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Or black or white. Right. So so this is a, a more subliminal thing that, you know, red has a lot of associations, at least in English. You know, passion, blood, uh, love, romance, the heart, you know, you know, excited, go on with that. Right. Um, so that redness is really, uh, you know, creates a, a kind of fulmination. And then look at the rhythm of it. So, you know, you get like pretty sure my red is your red. So you get pretty sure my red is your red. Notice the three, that feeling of three. So you remember the old the old saw of like. Five seven five in in uh, in Japanese it's go shichi go, which is uh, not syllables but sounds just on. They're very short, like going it 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 it. it. They're very short, so you can't the um, a Moraic language like Japanese does not at all equate on the level of the syllable or sound with English. Doesn't work. An accentual syllabic language and a Moraic language have no they have no correlation at that level, but they do have a metrical correlation. And that's, that's really where haiku have moved over the last probably, you know, even 30 years or so. And this feeling of, of three is often present or short, short, long, short, but this, the information packed in is uh, like Japanese. It's, it's actually less than you would think. If you, if you were to write five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, you'd end up with something informationally that's a lot longer than a Japanese haiku. So pretty sure my red is your red, Definitely has a feeling just like if I read a, ja- a poem in Japanese, you know, furuke ya kawazu tobiko mumizu no auto. You know, it's they're 
actually very, very similar in rhythmically, well, a little different rhythmically, but in time and in information are very similar. So if you thought pretty sure my red is your red sounded too short or not enough information for a haiku, it's, you know, old prawn frog jumps into water sound. That's, that's the famous Basho haiku, right? It's not very much information, really. Um, okay, so there's a thing about pretty sure my red is your red where you can't find a juxtaposition. The juxtaposition is more in this relationship space of the, you know, you immediately sense there's two people. There's a, there's a my and a your. And who are, who are those people and what's going on? That's the kind of juxtaposition. Position. So it doesn't, it's sort of the language makes that bloom out of, out of the poem. And this is like a poem that has a lot of ma. There's no one cut or, or one spot of juxtaposition, more psychological. So uh, interesting, right? I, I, I think they're really, mm -hmm. they, I think they work on me. And uh, it, it causes me to just, you know, contemplate language and I get a, a feeling of, um, I think it's like if you, if you have a really good wine, which I rarely have, but uh, if I've had a really good wine and, you know, there's all the, all the different areas of the, the first taste and the bloom and the aftertaste and the lingering and then even the memory of the recollection. So uh, even a very short poem that cuts really strongly like this has, has its power. So a really short poem, which uses these techniques of, Ma disjunction, et cetera, could have a lot of power. That's mm -hmm. the question. Then is why? Like, why should why should five or six words do this? You know, that that's kind of also a, a launch point for me. It doesn't seem to make sense that something so short could have this much shift of consciousness or impact. But but they, but it's possible. And to last, I'll just say, doesn't it doesn't it show the power of English? I mean, it's it shows how much you can do with so few words to cause such a, a strong impact emotionally or imagistically, psychologically. Mm -hmm. So it's quite fascinating to me. Yeah. Do you want to, you want, uh, uh, do you want to look at some more, more poems? I, I thought just before we go into mm -hmm. like more of a topical area and then just have a free, free discussion. One more, one more set is on the next page. Um, and the reason why I'd like to do this is because, um, the poems I just read were yeah, written we by Peter that, yeah, in, in order where Peter, okay. uh, I'll do it, I'll do it. Uh, Peter Yovu, Scott Mason, Alan Summers, Brendan Slater, John Stevenson, and Jim Casian. Um, now, this is online, and you can download the whole, the whole article with all this haiku, and all the references are there, citations. So, it, you know, as long as we cite it in the, mm -hmm. you know, in yeah, the notes. Yeah. I think it's already in here, there, so people can no click problem, right now if they want. And, Sure. And then in the next, the next grouping, uh, which is called Forms of Resistance, uh, there are one, two, three, four, there's about six poems. Um, of, of the six, uh, five, I think four are written by, by women, and they're also quite notable. I think some have won, won some awards. So I'd just like to look at a couple of those because they're, yeah, sure, they're different. I've got them up right now. So, so the first one is uh, by... Uh, a dear friend of mine who I was luckily able to meet um, while well, I'm visiting uh, right now Los Angeles and I gave a couple of presentations and uh, uh, she wrote this this haiku uh, what's left of us caves on Mars what's left of us caves on Mars and I'd like to just jump to the one that's uh, right underneath it nothing rhymes with it agent orange nothing rhymes with it agent orange and the first haiku is by uh, Deborah Kologi, and the second haiku is by Christina uh, Nugent. 
so I think you'll find it. So this is a very different kind of feeling from the first group. And uh, what I wrote about what I wrote about Debian's haiku was um, implying a, a possible future as a conditional mythopoetic space in which humanity might or might not have survived on our nearby exoplanet. Uh, what lies in that Martian cave might be dust or bones, in any case, markings of lost dreams and survival error. So just talking about that haiku for a minute, um, I just love that it, it's sci-fi, you know, it's a kind of sci-fi haiku, it's futuristic, and it's, you know, you're shot far into the future, and humanity has, you know, disappeared, and it's kind of archaeological sense, right? So there's a real nice uh, bite, right? It's a definite, definitely... Um, uh, social criticism, I think it's done just excellently, and it's a playful, right? There is a there's kind of a wry twist of humor yeah. in it, I think dark humor, and then in uh, right and in um, in new in new um, I, I I sorry. Wait, uh, hey, before we go to that, I think there's interesting. You know, so so you oh, said yeah. it's social oh, yeah. commentary, and for me, I read that as a metaphor right. about relationships because it's it's what's left of us, you know, and and right. I think of I, for maybe just a random. Okay. Because I happen to associate the us with some kind of relationship. I imagine what's left of our relationship is Caves on Mars. So I don't seek social commentary when I read this poem at all, which is uh, Mm -hmm. sort of the interesting, that ambiguity, there's a way that that haiku pushes ambiguity so far that you can interpret it in a lot of ways, but there's, and the good ones are still a deep meaning there, even if you're interpreting it completely differently. And and that's why I feel like like haiku is the right. is the center. It's like the heart of any poem is a haiku in a really strange way. And um, anyway, um, yeah. So for mm. me, that seems about relationships. Like it, like what's left of our relationship are just these caves on Mars, which are once <laughs> populated, and there's some kind of relic right. of what was there in the relationship, you know. And so I have a completely right. different reading of that poem <laughs> as you. Yeah, I think that you know, there's. There's no right here. There's no there's no answer here. I can I could say that when I read the us, I thought of it as as humanity, right? And I think mm-hmm. when you read the us, yeah, you, yeah. you thought of it as more personal. Right? And uh, the, the the author gives us no clue at all. And she, I have a feeling she probably she probably knew that in when you know when when it was finished, that it had that ambiguity and you know left it there. So that in a way, I think that's it's very playful to do that. I think that you know. Pretty sure my red is your red has a lot of playfulness, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's also yeah. very ambiguous. Um, in in Nugent's, uh haiku, I think it's more more directly, you know, clearly uh, social commentary yeah, and yeah, also definitely. historical commentary. Uh, uh, I wrote she poses a conceptual blend as a semantic puzzle rhyme challenge of biogenocide. The reader is asked to envision its answer. Does anything rhyme with Agent Orange? Right. Uh, I'm sure you can find something that rhymes with Agent Orange, but it's damn hard, right? And, uh, you know, what this means is, you know, it's also uh, implicating the reader and the horror of, you know, this the, the chemical that, you know, has, you know, just devastated, you know, biogenocide, human, mm-hmm. you know, human yeah, disaster, yeah. human illness and death, and just, you know, and then it brings up, the the issue of war and uh, in this case it was used in the Vietnam War uh, quite a bit right so all of that is in these tiny you know here's what's interesting or at least I think amazing in a way to me is how did she ever think of that you know I mean just a, it's just a really surprising uh, expression of language nothing rhymes with it Agent Orange you know I, I think that's just 
to stop there. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't go on. It's, it's not and, a narrative. And, and why? Why is a? And why is it nothing rhymes with it, Agent Orange? Why is it not? Why is it not just nothing rhymes with Agent right. Orange? There's some kind of stop there that that's right. really crucial to the the haiku right. too, in, a, in an interesting way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the word. The word. Every word is exact. It. You know. You. You can't waste a word. It has to have a purpose. And that it just. You know what it is, right? The what it is of it there. Yeah, so it's referring to the subject mm-hmm. that isn't completely yeah, clear, yeah. you know, as it would do. And, I mean, you could say more about it. There's a lot more to say about it or the or a, uh, especially in haiku. I mean, I think this, this, the smallest particles determine, you know, whether it's a determiner or an, in, in, you know, um, a, an article which is determined or indeterminate, in a haiku, that that's something to really be discussed. People will discuss that in haiku, you know, which is better to use and that kind of thing. And, you know, it gets pretty philosophical. Um, OK, well, there's one more. Well, there's a couple more poems in this group. Right. So that just maybe I'll stop after not reading all of them. But uh, there's one by Fei Yagi, which is um, cold rain, my application to become a crab, cold rain. My application to become a crab. So that's one that um, that I don't I don't really access. I'm not sure how to get into that that poem. I've, I've read it before when I read this essay, and um, I didn't really get anything from it. So I'm wondering what you what you get from it. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think this one for me maybe has a more strongly metaphoric quality or more directly metaphoric quality because um, you know for me the application is a jo- job application, right? And, you know, she's applying for a job, you know, probably in a cubicle or, you know, it's it's not, you know, you know, how many unpleasant jobs have, you know, have any number of us have. And that cold rain is a seasonal word. So, uh, you know, it has this sort of traditional haiku quality where there's a, a nature image or a natural image, let's say not nature, but natural image, cold rain, you know, and that's. The image of um, Hatsu, shug- shug- uh, Hatsu Shigure is like the first cold rain of winter. That's a, a Japanese season word. Or um, in this case, it might be fall. You know, but it's a, you know, a shivery, uncomfortable, pretty nasty feeling. And she's submitting her. You know, this is my image. You know, she's submitting her application for this job to be, you know, become a crab. Which that's the metaphor. You know, doing some data entry, some horrible thing. Let's say so. I, it's, it's a, it's a very, it's darkly humorous that way. It's very ironic. And that's how I pick up on it. Uh, I should say, uh, people are talking in the chat. So, uh, Kim teacher came up with door hinge that rhymes with orange and, uh, there will be rhymes. No, they're going to be, you can find, you know, that's what, that's, what's good about it is that Mm -hmm. you can find rhymes. You will find rhymes. Right. But, but, but the, in a haiku, the statement is sort of existential in a way, like nothing can rhyme with it. Why? Not because of the word Agent Orange, right? It's because of what it did or what happened. But actually, you know, maybe well, something not. will rhyme with it pretty <laughs> yeah. soon. You know, it's sort of spo- mm-hmm. it's it's well, you know, it's spooky, right? It's it's actually that if something did rhyme with it, it would be another, you know, like another horror, like Yemen or whatever's going on, and you know, so you're, you know, you take pick your, mm-hmm. you know, pick your awfulness, really, unfortunately, but. By making that statement, nothing rhymes with it. It's she's taking a very strong stance yeah, in a yeah. certain way. You see what I mean? Definitely. So, 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 how is the space the third space? Like, what, 
what do you think is actually going on when we do this? Like, why do we do this? I think we, uh, we, we met over coffee yesterday. We were both talking about like, why do we, why are we obsessed with this, this stuff that we're obsessed with that so few people are, I mean, even among the poetry community, I think somebody had a comment that was like, this is boring. I thought it was a reading. And, um, like, oh, no, 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 but, uh, but, but why are, what is it about this, this weird aspect of poetry? Like, what is poetry doing and why does it matter? Like, can you speak to that a little bit? Because, um, I don't know. We, oh. I can okay. answer that yeah, in just ahead. one sentence, Tim. Sure. <laughs> it's yeah. 42, no. I think. <laughs> what, what, what is poetry? Why does it matter? I think, I, I'm not sure about you. I know for me, that's really been my struggle. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a personal struggle. You know, I take it really personally. It's not, that's not an abstract question at all. I mean, if you feel called to write poems or even read them, I think, uh, what, what is that? And why, what, it, where is it valued in society? You know, I, I think that I feel that the poet is often invisible. Although there are a lot of poets writing poetry, the aspect of the consciousness that's involved, why, why do it? Why enter into that space? I think that's mm-hmm. not a value. Existent- it's yeah, just not even yeah. a thing, maybe you could say. And I, I, I felt quite uh, disenfranchised and even dis, I don't know, how would you, dis-existentialized, you know, in my life a lot by feeling of why am I, why am I, why do I care so much about this, which uh, seems uh, just absolutely, uh, you know, virtual, virtual in, in a sense of um, less than dissipating steam or something like that, right? So, yeah, I mean, that, that my writing is trying to an- not answer the question, but to, to bring this aspect of the poetic into mm-hmm. uh, visibility. And I think that haiku are a good example for yeah, yeah. something that's there. If you get, if you get the sense of that haiku, if you slow your mind down enough, you know, it takes, you have to slow down, read something really short, take a little time with it. And then you, you know, query yourself, you know, what's mm-hmm. going on, what's it doing to you? Because if, if, if you're moved at all, I think then there's a conversation, but it's subjective, right? I mean, it's a lot of people go, well, those words don't mean anything yeah. to me. I, I don't see the point to it. And I, I can't really talk to those people. It's okay. I just, it's like art. It's like, you know, some people, I, I mean, I struggle with opera maybe or something like that, you know, so that's okay. But to, the, to those people who are interested in what these short poems do, um, Let's take uh, in in Heidegger actually wrote something about the holy, about holiness, and I think I can I can just read it quick. It's a very short quote, uh, if you don't mind. Um, Second, okay, so uh, sort out that in my mess here. Okay, well, while I'm talking, I think that when we talk about like a feeling of the sacred or, or holiness or sanctity or even sanctuary, it, it tends to feel like those words are very religious. And if we use the word spiritual, a lot of, like haiku kind of came into English as being a Zen like mm-hmm. uh, moment or something like that, which isn't how they're received in Japan. Uh, and so that, you know, there's some confusion about that. But I, I do think that we can say something uh, that is 
it's there are there is a relationship in Western philosophy. There there was um, and continues to be an interest in what I think Heidegger called the, the primordial po- poeticizing. Uh, he wrote this. Uh, it's uh, part of that article. Um, in the early modern era, Holderlin's passage, full of merit yet poetically, man dwells on this earth, inspired Heidegger's phenomenological idea, the primordial poeticizing of being as an aspect of the holy. Okay, so what I was writing about was that this, the idea of the holy like be, began in um, much earlier eras as a religious idea, but it became secularized in various ways. And this is part of that that step into into the secular, but also it's it's quite beautiful, I think, that you know, from Holderlin to Heidegger in this in this area of Heidegger, um, there's a lot of issues with him, of course. But what he said here is is quite interesting. He said um, it is only because language as such is the primordial poeticizing that Posey, which uses language as its medium, enjoys a primacy among other forms of art. Poetic images are imaginings in a distinctive sense, not mere fancies and and illusions, but imaginings that are visible inclusions of the alien in sight of the familiar. In bringing the word to be, poetry places the thing in the dimension of greatest reality, where past and present and future meet to transcend this man or this individual or that, this time or that, the dimension of the pure act of illumination itself which in its total reality transcends the thing, the individual, the epoch, to become what is lasting, for that is what is holy. There is. It's, it's hard There's to unpack a lot in that. even, even uh, I'm listening and, and trying to unpack that in my mind. Um, but, but it does feel holy to me in the way that, that creation itself is always holy. And... Um, there's my, I used this metaphor yesterday when we were talking, but um, but I feel like what poetry does, and, and it was haiku that sort of made me see it in this way using this metaphor, but I feel like what poetry does is enhance the resolution of human experience. So so as I said, the, that when you're born, there's only two pixels. There's there's mom, mother and not mother, and then there's, and there's yum and yuck. And as you grow older, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. the, it becomes four pixels and then eight pixels and then 16. And, and, and it becomes these nuanced emotions and feelings and thoughts and ideas that are all interconnected. And what haiku does is it sort of manages to take one pixel here that's, and, and divide it up in a different way or put it next to a different pixel in a way that, that, that make, enhances the resolution mm-hmm. and makes it so there are more pixels in your view and right. your experience of life. And, and, and yeah. I don't think there's anything more holy than I mean, as, as an atheist and a secular person, I don't think there's anything more holy than than seeing life more clearly and more with more resolution and understanding things in different ways. And and so it becomes this, mm. you know, religion is always a movement between the self consciousness to a universal consciousness. And there's a way that it reaches out into the unknown and puts two things together in a way that 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 enhances the resolution. And I think that's what poetry does in general. And haiku really mm-hmm. demonstrates that by doing it specifically with two items that are that are juxtaposed. So that that's kind of what I feel like, and what and why it resonated yeah. with your book so mm-hmm. much. Thanks. Um, I think I think as when we were talking that in in that uh, back and forth, I really you know enjoyed that image that you gave of, of this increasing re- resolution 
Did you know, like, Wallace Stevens actually, he wrote, uh, he actually stated something very simple, not, not exactly in the, in the sort of evolutionary biology aspect that you did, but he talked about enlargement. You know, he didn't talk about development. And he, he had this idea of enlargement, which, you know, when you enlarge a, a photo, if it doesn't have enough yeah, resolution, yeah, exactly. you just sort of get pixels. But it seemed like he was, he was really talking to mm-hmm. that, that, I, that sense of um, an enlargement of life is also creating resu- greater resolution. Yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's not blurring things out and mm-hmm. causing them to blend and fade. And also, uh, Cheslav Milos, if you read his Nobel lecture, he was, he was very concerned that, and he said, stated that one, you know, the role of the poet is partly um, to make sure that, that history doesn't fade and dim into a, like a gray miasma. And he talked about, you know, kind of creating this uh, sharp, the sharpness, you know, the image, the emotion, the, uh, you know, the power of poetry to, uh, to, to recollect, you could say, is, is one of the important aspects. Like we, I see it in the, you know, in the social media yeah. age with, with, with Facebook, say, you know, it's just the disappearing history it's just disappearing. So that resolution could even be applied to the remembrance oh, yeah. of ourselves. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. that's where that is it. Right. And so there's a joining of when I use the terms in a secular sense of, of the holy or the poetization, whatever, where we talked about it as the third, this third thing, which which we could still like if you're reading my work, you'll see it's quite a bit more. There's quite a bit more to to the idea. But um, what happens, you know, when that resolution is, is increased? And I think it's something mysterious, but I don't mean superstitiously mysterious. I mean, that mystery of being. And to enter into that mystery of being is involves a certain amount of disappearance, a disappearance of the ego or the self. And I find that when I write, I disappear or, you know, I I need to disappear, actually. I I don't know if you feel that way, but I love it. There's a kind of ecstatic aspect to that. And uh, now I'm a little bit hesitant to call any of that holiness, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, I use that word because it's it's a very direct yeah, yeah. and, you know, why why mess about? But on, on mm-hmm. the other hand, it, it has a lot of other it has yeah. freight. It's a freighted term. But it, in the book, I've been trying to talk about mm-hmm. um, something really deep that's yeah, going on. Yeah. And it's really hard to talk about. And I don't think it's a bad word. Mm-hmm. I often use sanctity well, in, or in sanctuary. Buddhism, there's a ways, word. But, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, sure. Let me, can I can yeah. I um, can I add one, one thing? What it, re- it relates to what you said. Uh, and I think what I said in. We actually almost mentioned oh, it. Remember yeah, the yeah. Uh, Emily Dickinson quote? You, uh-huh. So I have it, I have it here. Um, we, we were both uh, remembered this quote, but not exactly. Uh, yesterday we, we had a chat. Um, Emily Dickinson uh, described, uh, the way I wrote it was like this. I wrote, um, I wrote a section in, in the book called uh, Re- Remystification. And it's, it's this idea of actually... Um, be, allowing yourself to be permeated in a sense by the mystery of life. Um, James Hillman used the term soul or reintroduced that into, into psychology in a very specific way. And he defines soul as, as that which deepens. And so like haiku, uh, who knows what that means, but we all, I think, have an experience of being deepened uh, in different ways in our life. And I, I think uh, hardest often search that out and yeah, readers yeah. want that deepening. In novels, in whatever form, right? And so we don't, maybe that's something we don't talk about yeah. very much is what is that deepening? You know, or it doesn't go anywhere. It goes forever, right? So um, I think that connects to what Emily Dickinson said when, when, um, when she wrote, uh, if, I re- if I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can ever warm me, I know that is poetry. 
if I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. Mm -hmm. I think that's credible statement. It's an embodied, it's an embodied statement. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a physical thing in the cell. I mean, maybe, you know, I, is she being metaphorical or, or absolute? I, I think, Mm -hmm. um, maybe a little both, I think. Right. I mean, sometimes like you said that in your introductory poem that you read, you know, it just absolutely, uh, you know, uh, the, the idea of the moment of inspiration is, mm-hmm. you know, it's an it in, is, yeah. it's a in-breath. It's a held in It's like the headlights moment, like a real inspiration of, of something beautiful or that strikes you, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you get shivers, you know, maybe they hear hair. Yeah. Do you know, I was really going to mention this. Do you know the concept in Buddhism of Pratitya Samutpada, which is the inter- interdependent um, co-arising yeah. phenomena? We, we say emergent <laughs> phenomena. But what happens, what this third space is maybe, is the way that we realize that we are part of this, this universal emergent phenomena, that, um, that, that we're one, a oneness with creation, I guess you would say. You were talking about the way the self dissolves away, and, and, you know, and, and that's kind of what happens. Like you, your sense of the id, or whatever you want to call it, dissolves, and then we realize just for a moment that we're part of this bigger thing that we don't have a grasp of i guess and and that is and that is that emergent universe that we inhabit which we don't encounter in daily life except through things like poetry and art you know if you look at a at a pollock painting and you stand up close and and your entire field of view becomes that you experience Mm -hmm. that same sublime kind of feeling and that's what uh that's what poetry does for me and why why i love poetry and and i feel like it's creating an awareness of reality and and a, so so that's what I like about it, and I think haiku haiku really demonstrates and that. Mm-hmm. You you actually talked about that the same idea. I like the image of the of the Pollock painting. Reminded me of I, I what popped into my mind was like Helen Frankenthaler or Rothko, um, which I also love um, the color field in abstract expressionism. I have my students in my class. I teach a class in Japan, uh, Introduction to Haiku in English. And one of the things we do is we, I have them choose paintings in different modern, modernist eras. And I, especially when I go to abstract expressionism, color field painting, they choose a favorite painting and then try to write a haiku without any of the colors in the painting. You know, that's nonlinear. Anyway, it's a great thing to try. And I, I, I recommend it as a creative um, like a, um, idea. But um, You talked about cognitive dissonance in a very interesting way, and I don't, I don't know if that's relating with what you just said. Well, well I do think um, – we were talking yesterday, and I think that, that poetry creates a kind of cognitive dissonance because it re, rearranges your worldview. Like you have sort of a map of the world that you build throughout your life, and there's a way that poetry undercuts that map. We were talking about that before with the, the metaphors involved in the haiku. But there's a way that it undercuts your expectations and changes mm-hmm. your way of looking at things. And that actually is cognitive dissonance because it's, it's a shifting of your right. previous perception. And, and there's a weird way that I think that some people really enjoy cognitive dissonance and they like that experiment in the same mm-hmm. way people love like skydiving mm-hmm. or something. Uh, you know, it's sort of an adrenaline rush for right. some people. And I think it's not for others. I think other people feel that and right. flee in the same way you would looking out over mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a, the door of a plane thing. Hey, jump. You know, some people would say, yeah, jump. And some people would say, hell fucking no. 
Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so I think there's right. a weird way that, that right. poetry can't well, be yeah. popular because it requires cognitive dissonance in a lot. And mm. the majority, I don't know what percentage it would be, two thirds don't enjoy that. They want their worldview fixed. And um, and then there's like a third of people that enjoy having their yeah, worldview. Right. So that's why certain people like going to art museums, and some people think it's a boring waste of time. And mm -hmm. um, and I think the same thing exists for poetry. Right. So that's what I was talking about there with cognitive dissonance. I I, uh, I really respond to that, and also feel that um, it, it's strange to say this, but in a certain way, I think that certainly haiku or entering into this the space that haiku brings you requires a, a lot of psychological sophistication. It's you're not, you know, because haiku don't have one answer. They never do. They're, they're always multiple in images and answers and emotions, too. And why, why you would like to do that or what's entertaining even about that is, is that it it kind of tickles you. You know, it's sort of there's there's that strange poetic funny bone almost, you know, that it, it, it's a. Uh, it's luring you. It's, it's kind of seductive and it open, it's opening and expanding your, your ideas and feelings. And I think further that it, mm -hmm. it requires a kind of tolerance. And I would oppose that to intolerance. I mean, I think when you have really fixed views and, you know, this is always that and not the other mm -hmm. thing, th you know, that's that's yeah. definitely yeah. hardens your thinking. And um, this kind of poetry just it, it's. It's a very uh, interesting uh, senses of interplay and nuance. Yeah, so yeah I know I was we don't have much you could time, maybe right? read some of your own poems, Dan, because you, you've read other people's poems and you haven't read any of your own ah. haiku. I've, I have some printed out. Yeah, yeah. We should. Uh, um, yeah. You know, people are kind of filtering oh, in, uh, waiting to hear themselves on the open mic, I think, because we just had a little spike of viewers. So uh, we should yeah. kind of move on a little okay. bit. But but I'd love to hear some of your poems because we haven't read any of yours. So. Oh, no. No, that's okay. I mean, I'm not... Uh, I'm not, you know, I didn't come well, on to, I know you to don't, read my but, own but work, still, really. I think everybody um, would like to hear a couple of years. So, so let's, let's find some. And... Oh, okay. I have to, I don't have them okay. right in front of me. So let me pop up something. What um, are you well, looking have, at something that you, I have the stuff that you sent me. I, hey, how about, would you mind? I, I'd like you to, if you could, do you have the one that says uh, 15 Gilbert haiku plus two visual? Yeah, I'll, I'll pull that up. It's a word second. document. So you could start there, and, and I'll, I'll get it on screen uh, for everybody. Okay. Um, well, I'd like to get to the visual coup because I think they're interesting to actually see rather than just talk about. But um, I'll read um, I'll read probably, you know, in a certain way, it's a somewhat of a signature haiku of mine because it, it, it's ended up uh, in the haiku's English Norton book and that kind of thing. And it goes very simply like this, um, as an and you and you and you alone in the sea, as an and you and you and you alone in the sea. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are these are some, I guess, oceany poems or water poems. Uh, here's another one. A drowning man pulled into violet worlds, grasping hydrangea. A drowning man pulled into violet worlds, grasping hydrangea. And uh, another, uh, something of a scar of ocean left, rolling cigarettes. Something of a scar of ocean left, rolling cigarettes. Uh, it must be how Violence in the world, crocus. It must be how 
violence in the world, crocus. There's a few that were from the last few years. And another one that I, I kind of like, uh, this is from a few years ago. Um, unchangeability, I leave the earth that way. Unchangeability, I leave the earth that way. And I, I fear that mm-hmm. could really be true. Um, uh, be, be mine, alive, for one more war. Be mine, alive, for one more war. Oh, I guess you'd say some of these are reflecting mm-hmm. on current events yeah. and that. Um, here's, a, here's something a little different, quick one. Um, moon, resins, sex, and God, and teeth, and fingernails. Moon, resins, sex, and God, and teeth, and fingernails. Okay, so you scroll down. I'll do a, another couple. I have. I like also writing on arrows. So, a couple more is um, in that in that area. Is a uh, uh, one interesting one here. I think licking the cleft, sweet aspirin after rain. Licking the cleft, sweet aspirin after rain. And another. What became deeper of you, I let in. What became deeper of you, I let in. And uh, let's scroll down to the end, the bottom part. Let's see, like, there's one that says page 22, and it's kind of a larger font. Yep, I've got it. It's almost at the bottom. Yep. So, you know, this is, there aren't too many people who are playing with, uh, you know, objective, you know, kind of objective layout in that. And uh, I like trying it sometimes, and uh, I hope more. I hope there's more. I would say before we go that, uh, I feel that, you know, haiku is becoming, uh, it's kind of more interesting to an older generation. There, there are not so many hmm. uh, younger people, and there's some, you know, like getting involved. But I think that we, we, we visual, like a visual aspect to haiku, it could be, could be really interesting, like a mixed media yeah. approach, found poetry approach. So I'm, I'm, I'm not at all like, a, you know, stuck on just, you know, publishing in journals or sticking it on a page. I think yeah. Instagram could be let, a let really Let me stop you there and, and ask, why do you think to, uh, poetry isn't catching on with younger poets? Is there a reason for that? You think it's ha- because it's how poorly it's taught in school? Yeah, I, do you think I, you that's know, the reason? Okay. Or? Uh, I can't. Uh, well, I don't. Yes. I mean, it isn't really mm-hmm. taught. I mean, yeah, this sort yeah. of area isn't really taught, this sort of poetry. But even if it was, wouldn't maybe that would ruin it. You know, I mean, I, a lot of literature mm-hmm. was ruined for me by school. And yeah, that's probably why yeah, I went to Naropa. I didn't yeah. you know, want that sort of thing. Right. So I'm not saying, yes, yeah, school. I don't know that that's such a good thing. But um, here's there's part of the answer is like this. So I have a f- good friend and he he was in Japan for, I don't know, 12 years or so. Uh, his name is Cohen France, and he, he's a, a fully, like, he has the highest sort of level of title of um, Soto Zen priest. And he speaks, you know, unbelievably beautiful Japanese. He reads, you know, ancient Japanese and et cetera, Buddhist texts. And he's the editor of Bodhidharma magazine right now. He lives in Halifax with his family. He moved out of Japan finally to do, you know, that's his going along. And we've had a lot of talks over the years um, because he finds the same thing in the, in the Zen world in North America. You know, it's just an older and older group. And there are very few, you know, younger people really interested in doing like Zen meditation yeah, yeah. or sitting or something like that. So I'm not saying that maybe it would be interesting. Maybe if more people uh, knew what was going on with haiku, or how cool it was or interesting, it, it, it would attract, uh, yeah. a, you know, a younger yeah, yeah. cohort, let's say. But meanwhile, these the older folks, I think they got into it through being interested in Japan, uh, yeah, interested in Zen. Sense, yeah. 
just mm-hmm. like just like the Zen people did. It's it's a cohort, right? It's probably a baby late baby boomer into the you know early disco mm-hmm. age kind of thing, right? Maybe that's my thought. So I don't have a big you know that's my biggest idea about it that I see the similarity and it's it's quite I mean it's quite parallel. The age you know the if you do a I think a this is our anecdotal <laughs> demographic study yeah. of two people. Like, you know, he knows he knows a lot. He knows all the different centers. And uh-huh. I'm also yeah, aware of the yeah. haiku world. I go to all well, there's a weird way that it's own it's own kind of world with the conferences, and they don't publish haiku in. You know, I, I, I became friends with a bunch of people after we did our haiku issue on Facebook, and and you know the the poems that are presented as haiku in, in say Poetry Magazine. There was a lot of uh, you know the, uh, hard feelings about that because they weren't really haiku. And um, right. so there's this weird, it's really I, off right, to the right. side. And almost in the same way Instagram poetry, you, you might say, or slam poetry is right. from the uh, journal academic type environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there was a, there's a lot of gatekeeping. I think, I think up until the 21st century, maybe around 2004 or five, there was like this, this uh, a feeling that, you know, haiku should be coming from the Japanese somehow really pure and definitely not contemporary poetry. I think that there was a lot of censorship and gatekeeping. Like we don't like contemporary poetry. We want it to be like this. You know, we want this sort of nature purism or whatever, a very, very traditionalist conservatist kind of view, even in Japan, that would be considered, you know, probably pretty, pretty uh, conservative. But if we could, I'll read I'll read these last two uh, kind of more visual coup. Yeah. yeah, Let's read those to finish it out. uh, In this way. And then, and then if, if we could end with, with the, the, in the PowerPoint presentation, there's one slide okay, which yeah, is from yeah. Femku Mag, and it would be slide number 9, 10, 11, 12. Okay. I think it would be slide 13. And I'll, I'll just look. These are fun to look at while you read them, right? So that's why they're, I, I thought they'd be fun. So this one is, uh, starts uh, with the egg. It's the egg one. So egg shell par... He shun brought to light a body dreams. Eggshell par ki shun brought to light a body dreams. And uh, what I just say about it is, you know, if you if you just squeeze all the words together and stick them into three lines, it doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's something when you look at it and how it breaks up your mind and stuff. So the last one is. Um, I'll give one comment before I read it, which is I read this. I'm in a Japanese um, kukai, which is haiku gathering party. That's a traditional Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, haiku groups do this. And uh, a good friend of mine, he's now in his mid 80s, Hoshinaga Humio. He's on the Gendai mm-hmm. Haiku website with an interview. Um, I read, I, I brought up this haiku and I read it to him, and he said to me, <laughs> "I wish I'd written that," which was like the greatest honor, you know, for me because he's. He's wow. a really phenomenal poet. So, well, I'm uh, curious to see how you, I, read I, it to you know, I saw this and, and I thought, how the hell do you read this? Yeah. Okay, let's see. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll read it. I, 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 I. Hmm. Well, that's it. Actually, is much more. There's a there's a weird sense of sort of dislocation as you read that. Like a sort of, I don't know what to make of it, honestly. But it's a there's a strange feeling. Which when I read it on the page, I I had no idea what to even uh, <laughs> what to even do with it. 
Um, so, so say something about that, just so people can access it a little more. You know, for me, like when I when I think about writing haiku myself, I, I always try. If something really really strikes me as being uh, on an experimental mm-hmm. edge, I, then I get interested. And sometimes I'm, I'm thinking, you know, how like what is the range limit of haiku, or you know, where where does it go? And so this is one that probably you know pretty pretty far out. But if you look at it, it is arranged in a kind of short, long, short format. It's in three lines. Mm-hmm. It's just it has I in it. But if you if you actually read it rhythmically, you know, you can create a feeling of the poem the yeah, way you yeah. say. So it's a performance poem. But the other th- the other idea of it is that um, there is an mm-hmm. image behind it. It's personal image. But um, you know, I used to go into New York City a lot, and you know, when you see people on the street on the on the sidewalks, you know, people are walking in small groups or one or two or one or three. And there's sort of an image behind it of each eye as a person, you know, and they're sort of grouped together and apart and such like that. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's ones and twos and two, you know, three. So there is that kind of feeling in it. But it has is this really kind of not, it is, you know, if you say it's nonsense, <laughs> yeah. I'm OK. But that it's it's, yeah, just a, yeah. it's just playful. And I, I think uh, did you notice that haiku are, you know, come from and historically they come from the haikai or haiku, mm-hmm. haikai no renga tradition, which was a very. There's a haikai humor is considered to be part of haiku, and they they do have a this language play is is humorous, and I, I don't think there's too many uber <laughs> yeah, serious yeah. you know haiku, you know mm-hmm. it's it's really not a frumpy idea haiku, um, so that kind of plays yeah. with that to a, a limit maybe maybe yeah once again I, I'd like to far, d- direct everybody who's curious about that to read the interview we did in issue number forty seven I think the whole thing is online, uh, so you can uh, learn about this stuff because it's really fascinating. Um, just, I don't know, the whole history of haiku is a fascinating subject, which we really didn't get a chance to touch on in this uh, conversation. Right. Okay, yeah, we didn't... It is. It's, it's impossible yeah, yeah. to do. So do you want to finish up with these last three oh. haiku, and then we have to, then we'll go to the open mic. Um, that's great. Let's finish up, and uh, in this in this grouping... Um, this is actually from the presentation I've been giving around the country uh, through the month of August. I'm returning to Japan in a few days. So uh, I'm hoping to get this online, actually make the presentation a video recording with uh, a picture in picture and that sort of thing. So I'll try to tell Tim or send a message to Tim. Maybe he'll post that when, when it comes up. Um, so I was at the Haiku North America 2019 conference, which was in Winston-Salem between around August 6th and 11th. So just a few weeks ago, and there was a presentation on on Me Too haiku uh, and fem, Femku haiku. And Femku, hashtag Femku is a hashtag on Twitter. Um, and uh, this is uh, Tia Haynes and, and uh, Haynes and Lori Miner. Lori Miner uh, particularly is, is doing this magazine, which you can find online. Well, f- go to Facebook and type in Femku mag and you'd find it, I think, or hashtag Femku mag. So these are three... Um, Haiku that I picked out of the latest, some of the latest issues, they did a great presentation. And this is definitely a younger cohort. And uh, if anyone's interested, uh, particularly it's women writing for women. And they're spelling women, uh, or W-O-M-X-N, or um, there. So uh, it's really worth checking out, I think, as something new. So the first haiku here, uh, night heat, the inner chamber of an iris. Night heat, the inner chamber of an iris. Climate change, the politics of nether regions. Climate change, the politics of nether regions. And the last, 
Domestic abuse, taking the hit like a girl. Domestic abuse, taking the hit like a girl. And that's by the first Hannah Mahoney and the second Robin Anna Smith and the third Tia Haynes. And uh, to end, could you jump to slide 16? Okay, this I'll just stop at this point because I'd like to introduce for everyone to finish off that we actually have created um, an online interactive forum for Haiku, just started August 1. It's called Haiku Sanctuary, haikusanctuary.com. And I just invite anyone interested in Haiku, register. Once you register, you can see the whole site. It's not a lot of the workshops and galleries of stuff are not open to the public. So uh, once you register, you can introduce yourself if you want or, you know, just just lurk, hang out. And we're it's a growing we're trying to create an international haiku community. And there's, you know, a lot of good people on it right now. So we <laughs> haven't had any good. troubles. Uh, same, it's, it's meant to be a sanctuary for exploring mm -hmm. some of the things we've been talking about and also yeah, just uh, yeah. playing with writing. Well, thanks so, so much, Richard. I think, uh, I, I don't know about everybody who's watching, but I really enjoyed that. So I, hopefully everybody else did too. I think I'm learning that if we're talking about yeah. topics, I think it's going to go a lot slower than uh, if we're just reading poems from books. So, so hopefully everybody doesn't mind that the longer format this week, but uh, I had a lot of fun uh, in this conversation and, and, and preaching a haiku. And it's really the fundamental essence of poetry, which is right here in haiku. So if you love poetry, you really probably mm. should love this or, you know, I'd be surprised if you don't. So hopefully that's true for everybody. Uh, thanks a lot. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah. And Tim, I just like to say thank you for like supporting this genre because you're, you know, one of the only people in the, the wider poetic world contemporary poetry is really been publishing this and looking into it and finding something. So I really appreciate your work. It's really honest. Well, that's well, not flattery. It's my really pleasure. True. I mean, it, it's real. And, uh, it's thanks for asking me to it's do a, this. It's a genre of its own, but it's, it's, uh, I really think it's fundamental to what we do and what we love. So, so we'll always continue to do that for sure. Great. Well, thanks so much. And I'll, I'll talk to you soon, All Richard. Right. Thanks a lot. All right. And anyone have questions also, if you join the forum, feel there's plenty of places to ask them, you know, uh, this, we, you can continue with uh, conversation and whatever. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's I'm one there. of the things maybe we should just say that admin, the haiku so. community is such a community and that's so central to what haiku is. And, and oh, I think yeah, maybe yeah. that's what draws a lot of people to it is that sense of community and that, that, that the conferences and the, the online interaction that mm -hmm. everybody has, it's a real positive, it's one of the, yeah. it's the same kind of way with, um, with formal formalists, like at the Able Muse, there's these little subgenres that are just so supportive and in wonderful places. And I think haiku is a wonderful place to be. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense that the smallest, you know, the smallest form of poetry, the smallest genre, mm -hmm. would have such wide yeah. community. And, and all over really the world big. too. We have uh, yeah, it's, yeah it's in our big, current issue that just like came out, we have a yeah. South African haiku poet that has eight eight haiku. So check that out when when the issue gets to you. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a global sort of strange niche phenomenon or subgenre. Right now, yeah, yeah right now, India, yeah, there's Kala Ramesh and Shloka mm -hmm. Shankar in India are just blowing things up with, with all kinds of work. There's um, uh, in in Ghana, there's you know a lot of there's haiku groups forming. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's yeah, really yeah. interesting if you get into the international, and they're using often a translation or a mm -hmm. medium of English yeah. in the internet yeah. on the internet, right, for communication. So. That's what we're. That's why the forum is there. Where we do have members from quite a number of countries. There, it's not. Mm -hmm. It's not a North yeah, America yeah. focus at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks again, Richard. It's a great yeah. talk to you, and I hope you have a great rest of the trip and a safe trip back to Japan. All right. Okay. All yeah. Right. See you later. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thanks, everyone.
So that was Richard Gilbert uh, talking about his book of poetry. Uh, let me pop it up on screen if I can find it again. And once again, his book was uh, Poetry as Consciousness. And um, if you if you go to the show notes, you can find a link to order it directly from him if you're interested in learning a lot more. I mean, we really, I mean, it's hard to, to imagine because it's kind of a long interview, but we barely, barely touched the surface of what's going on in this book. So um, you might want to pick up a copy if you found this interesting, although it's pretty expensive because he has to ship it all the way from Japan. He's working on some kind of American distribution. When that happens, we'll make sure you get the link. Um, so now let's go on to the open mic segment of the night. Uh, and this is where, yeah, turn off, turn off your YouTube. Just shut that window and only have Skype on for right now. Because otherwise it gets very confusing because there's a huge delay. But we have you on screen. Hello, Kitty Carpenter. Thanks so much for calling in. The Skype, the, the live Skype is my favorite part of the show, probably. It's so cool to have people call in from all over the world um, and, uh, and, and participate in poetry like this. So, so what do you have for us, Kitty? Uh, sorry, I can't, actually can't see anything on my screen oh, right yeah, now. Oh, yeah, yeah, I should mention for everybody, I'm, I'm using my video camera for the, uh, for the feed out, so you're not going to be able to see me. You can only hear me, but everybody can see you and hear you. So, so go ahead. It, do you have a poem for us tonight? Okay, yeah, I do. Um, so this is actually kind of a new uh, form, I guess you want to call it, a new genre, possibly. It was invented by... Um, a wonderful man named Robert Vivian, um, while he was working in, uh, he was teaching in Turkey, and it's called a dervish essay. Um, so I guess the best way to explain a dervish essay would be if you take a lyric essay, a slam poem, and um, a prayer, and you smash them together, you have the dervish essay. Um so it's, um, his are, um, much better than mine. This was kind of like my first attempt at one. He has entire books of them. His first one was this one. I don't know if you can see it at all. Can you guys see that? See it, yeah. Okay, so that one's like, uh, Mystery My Country is his first one. Um, and then he has Immortal Soft Spoken, which is kind of this cute little book here of them. So, um... But anyway, so they're kind of, um, it's hard to explain. So I'll just go ahead and do it. And I apologize um, ahead of time if I have a little trouble getting through this. Um, they tend to be a little bit emotional pieces. So um, I haven't gotten all the way through this piece yet without uh, catching. So uh, this is called Everywhere Divine. Um, I walked away from the man-made edifice from brick and mortar cell disguised with riches and bright glass and found the divine in the soft rumbling of sky and glittering silvers of black, uh, glittering slivers of lightning, splotchy darkening of stone, fat warm drops before the sky splits into a torrent. The scent of ozone and petrichor and damp air bacteria spawning in the soil, the divine and the way the sky blooms in that magic hour between day and dusk and God's eye in the wink of stars and stars bursting across the sky with fire feathered tails and stars huddled into milky galaxies and spiraled galaxies and stars exploding and stars devoured without a trace into the deep mystery of black holes. 
the divine is in the way that God, the divine is in the way the light steals color back into the world slowly at first, only outlines and soft shapes like the curved woman shadow dancing behind a red screen. Then all at once color everywhere, color in the reflection of a sunrise on ponds and in rain puddles and upside down portraits captured in water droplets and the oil slick iridescence of black grackles foraging in the shimmering green of dew wet grass and trees ablaze with sunset leaves clinging to them as if it's all they have left the divine and the chartreuse spiraling ballooning through the air fearless journeyer on glistening silver strand and pollen grain leg warmers stuck to fuzzy bees physics defying in flight as they bumble drunkenly from flower to weed and back to take up offerings of saccharine nectar and the lonely sphinx moth in his nightly visit to his pale flower lover who opens quietly to him but secretly loves the moon and love Glorious, treacherous love divine is in you in silhouettes of lovers shifting behind sheer curtains, lovers interlaced fingertips on sidewalks and in park benches and on subway cars and hospital rooms and lovers whispering with coy smiles and secret jokes and lovers quarreling then coming together ravenous and slick with need and lovers talking into screens instead of faces and left behind lovers and lovers kneeling, tending to graves, murmuring softly to lovers gone. The divine is in the ruckus of cheers, the first triumphant squall of a dust-covered baby pulled from beneath the rubble of a building in a war zone. Stop. A baby pulled from beneath rubble. Where is God in this as we say to each other, your God and my God and no God and louder, my God, and argue the word for God and not listening now but screaming until the screaming that we hear is the screaming of missiles and not thunder now but the rumble of building collapsing and no longer lightning but flashes of bombs planted and bombs drops and hail of bullets and screaming as streets are splashed and darkened with torrents of blood instead of rain we are rebuilding the tower of babel only this time we are building it with bodies and after each body we sit proudly as a dog as a dog as his master's feet saying look i have slain this lamb for you and the divine's face awash with tears for each dead saying this is not what i meant but we do not hear, so here are pictures. A man and his son float face down in a river. Children packed in pens like livestock. Unearthed bodies of lovers still embraced. Bodies of mothers curled around bodies of their children. A toddler's red shoe washed ashore. Ooh, thank you. Kitty Carpenter, thanks so much. That was an intense poem, that train of, uh, of words coming through. Uh, can you say again what the title of that poem was? Um, that one's Everywhere Divine. Everywhere Divine. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for joining in the open mic and sharing that with everybody. We really appreciate it. Uh, hope you call in again sometime. All right. Um, thanks. I'm going to try to get back onto the... Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll hang up with you, and I'll uh, start doing the uh, pre-recorded open mics. But if anybody has a... Um, if anybody has uh, Skype and would like to call in for the open mic right now, the, the lines are open. All you have to do is send me a quick chat message, and I'll um, give you a call back, and you can join in and read whatever you'd like. Um, the, the great part about it, I just love open mics because you never know what you're going to get. It's always a lot of fun. Um, so now we have one of the pre-recorded open mics. And, and if you want to pre-record an open mic, I should say, um, just go to rattle.com slash rattlecast, and you can submit both an MP3 and um, the text of the poem, so I can put it on screen through Submittable. And um, as long as the sound quality is good and it's the right length and things like that, we'll play it. Um, so 
so this is a poem by Chris Beaver. Um, it's gardening. And uh, Chris, um, Chris Beaver's from Kirkland, Washington. Um, and she had a poem in Poets Respond a few weeks ago called Some of My Best Friends about her uh, hometown having its first gay pride month. So, so she's been published in Rattle before. Um, but this is a poem about um, her friend Emily Montgomery and, and, and Lynn. So we'll let you... Um, one second, we'll let Emily introduce it herself. Or, I mean, uh, Chris introduce it herself. My name is Chris Beaver, and I'm going to read Gardening, a poem I wrote to honor two friends, Lynn and her daughter, Emily. Emily died in 2012. Emily has a poem that's appeared in Rattle Magazine, and this poem, Gardening, appeared in the Fox Poetry Box. Gardening for Len Ingleson Montgomery in memory of Emily Thomas Montgomery, 1978-2012. to 2012. For a while after death, the world has room for the one we loved. It is a time taken for granted like returning seasons, until days unfurl without mention of her name or the many ways she brought life into full bloom. It is natural for some memories of each living thing to wilt when soil is plowed under or dissipate into the indifferent weather of moving on. But you diligently till heartbreak, unearth hope, nurturing stories of your exquisite daughter for her children to behold and transplant when they are grown. Once again, that was Chris Beaver reading uh, Garden for Lynn and Emily Montgomery. And I thought maybe I should read uh, Emily's poem in Rattle. Uh, she was published in our Love Poems issue, which is sort of doubly heartbreaking. This is a poem um, that was submitted posthumously, uh, and it's for her, brother, her, for her husband, Chris. This is Something Beautiful by uh, Emily Montgomery. Something Beautiful. I wanted to save something beautiful for you. The last three jewels of glistening pomegranate balanced in the palm of my hand before I ate them. The morning bird song and the lemon tree after you left for work. The memory of last night's rain still written on the lawn. Or earlier, the haunting roundness of the moon over the canyon just before dawn when I couldn't sleep, standing at the window looking back at you, your body floating in the watery moonlight of our sheets. I mean something really beautiful, my love. The stillness in the house after the washing machine ceased to hum. The last line from a slender book of poems. A hardback from the library barely worn, repeated aloud for you, its bitter sweetness still lingering on my tongue. Or the way the baby slept so deeply while I read, burying himself in the secret scent of his favorite blanket. One arm thrown across the, that woolen teddy my mother gave us in those final weeks of waiting before his birth. The other hand open wide, fingers outstretched in a dancer's graceful, expectant pose. I wanted to save all of this for you, but I couldn't. It didn't last. It never does. That brief moment of grace when the ordinary shines so exquisitely, at the end of the day you will return to us as you always do, and we will both be tired, empty, distracted, spent, everything more chaotic, more fragile than when you left. And that was uh, Something Beautiful by Emily Montgomery 
for her husband Chris before she died. Um, just one of the one of the most heartbreaking poems we've ever published. Honestly, uh, it's hard to get through it almost, but but beautiful too, and and such a great reminder of of what matters in life. Um, okay, let's move on to the next poem. This is John. Uh, this is J. Allen Nelson, and this is the family I never had, and. Um, Jalen Nelson from Waco, Texas, is a writer, poet, and actor with photos, essays, and stories, screenplays, and poetry published or forthcoming in several journals. He also played the lead in Gay Cake, the verbose Silent Ale, in the Emmy Award-winning SXS Westworld, and the creepy Reverend Bob Jones in the feature Sister Amy. So look for him on IMDb. Uh, This is John Allen Nelson. And I actually do have his audio. So uh, here we go. Hello. My name is J. Allen Nelson, and the name of this poem is The Family I Never Had. I'm recording this on a work table on a ranch in Bosque County in Texas. This was originally published in the Red River Review, and it's about the families that we are thrown into when we come into this world and how bizarre they are. The family... I never had. The mother I never had says the same thing every day since memory began. Hickory dickory duck, she says, and slides out her knife. The father I never had drinks warm beer, wears his pants over his belly button, and confronts adolescents that stare at the way he wears his pants. When the oaks lose their leaves, my dad finds them. He rakes and rakes and rakes, stuffing the leaves into overloaded plastic bags stacked at the bottom of the hill. The brother I never had walks property lines. He yells territorial warnings to the neighbors. Stop, he screams. Why are you so close to our fence? He sticks his thumb in my mother's desserts, attempting to pull out a plum. He has burn scars when he tries this too soon from the baking. He grabs a bag of leaves, takes it to the top of the hill, and dumps it into the wind, watching the leaves scatter. Leaves of oaks, he screams. Not leaves of grass. Leaves of oaks. Why does mother chop tails off blind mice? Are they blind from poison or some genetically spliced indigestible grains from multinational solar husband? Why a carving knife instead of a scalpel? Is she mentally defective? Why can't the cat catch those blind mice? Or does the cat sense that they are tainted, giving wide berth as the mice scamper with their bleeding stumps, running into feet and table legs, squeaking in terror? My brother and father avoid the subject and step carefully. I step as quick as I can, leap over the flaming candlestick, and out the front door, wailing, wailing, wee, 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 away from this home, away from this family, I deny. So, yeah, so that was J. Allen Nelson reading uh, The Family I Never Had. And I was just saying, if you, uh, if you pre-record these, do what, do what J. Allen Nelson did and, um, and let, let us know where you are and give us a sense of sort of that you're actually there because we really want to feel like we're connected. And that's um, what these are for. They're sort of time-delayed connections because that, not everybody can be up or be – some people have to work at this time or some people are already in bed. So um, you know, we want to give everybody a chance to participate and um, 
that's one way to do it. So, so introduce it. Introduce yourself. Introduce the poem. And um, that'll be the way to go. Okay. So next up, we have... Oh, this is an interesting one. This is uh, Samantha Tisdale Wright. And this is her poem, Assault on the Senses. And um, this is going to be different. We try new things. This is not actually read by Samantha. You'll see in one second. Here we go. Hello. I see you. First thing in the morning. Last thing at night. I hear you. Always. Even when you think I'm not listening. I smell you. Your sweat. Your breath, your pathogens, your lust. I taste you. All the things you Google when you think you're alone. I feel you. Pressing enter, swiping left, swiping right. Grabbing my joystick. Fingering my mouse. Your your billions of neurons turn me on. I know you, your passwords, your purchase patterns, your thumbprint, your iris, the algorithm of your beating heart. I help you. I view you. I influence you. I drive you. I guide you to your destination when you are lost. I like you. I link you. I rate you. I friend you. I search you, I find you, I blog you, I trend you, I, I stream you, I clip you, I pin you, I send you, I, I profile you, I attach you, I share you, I connect you, I message you, I insta you, I tweet you, I autocorrect you, I feed you, I binge you, I follow you, I hashtag you, I analyze you, I recognize you, I diagnose you, I, I save you, I... Nanobots in your dreams and blood. I virtually, virtually am you. I, I, I. Proceed to the root. Proceed to the root. Proceed to the root. I, 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 I. Delete. Unfriend. Unfollow. Unlike. So once again, this is uh, Samantha Tisdale Wright, and um, about this poem, uh, she said, 
Well, she lives and writes in San Juan Mountains of southwestern Colorado and is a two-time finalist for the Mark Fisher Poetry Prize and winner of the Society of Professional Journalists' Sigma Delta Chi Award. Um, so this is read by the persona of a Siri-like narrator, and it's actually the pre-programmed voice of her Apple computer. Assault the Senses explores how artificial intelligence is mounting an assault on the senses and it's on the brink of assimilating that which makes us most human. I recently performed this piece, she recently performed this piece, not me, um, at the 2019 Telluride Literary Burlesque. And yeah, I thought that was really cool. It occurred to me, though, uh, as we were playing that, that I hope there's no copyrighted music there. I don't really don't want a copyright strike on our channel so uh maybe i have to put that in the notes do not include any copyrighted music although i don't really know what a copyright strike means i just hear people talk about that um okay so um and once again if you'd like to call in we still have room to call in live on skype i know um who's i talking to cynthia and cashman was trying to figure out how to do it how you do it is um get the skype app on your phone or computer uh, search for Rattle Poetry, and we'll come right up. And uh, then all you have to do is send me a chat message, and I will reply, accept your chat, and then when the time's right, I'll call you back. So that's all you have to do. Hopefully you can find us there. We have, like, four more poems to do today, so in the space of between now and then, maybe you can call in Cynthia or anybody else who's interested in calling in. It's all part of the fun. Okay, so next up... Hang on, bear with me. Okay. So this is George Morales in his poem, Remix. Here we go. It's a shorter one. This is the test of an empire. An entire nation can be reappropriated, revolutionized, and galvanized into becoming. Been humming the same old tune in the back of our minds, waiting for a change, waiting for a sign. The towers crashed and we cashed in for the resource. We smoking hash and the time has come for reform, renew, review, revolutionize. All it takes is I to complete the we, the people, the black and the white, the left and the right. You want to see the real sight of some fright? Unite the spicks and the chinks, the well-spoken and the ones barely holding. Onto a hope, onto a dream. No, this ain't no American scheme. This the one that MLK dreamt of in scenes. This is the truth, the moment you've chosen. There is no more room for hoping. The truth has been spoken. It can never go back. We can't retract our steps. What is is what is, and what was is what was. The blood of indigenous, the enslaved and the brave. A nation was built on free labor and chains. A paper was signed and a law was amended, a constitution ratified while we all just pretended that these rules were different, rules that wouldn't end up in prison, end up in debt, end up in pain, end up in chain, end up ingrained. There's still time to change. The time will still be there. But beware, be careful, for this is the test of a nation. Now is the time for reappropriation. Thanks. Once again, that was George Morales reading his poem, Remix, and a great reading. I love that energy there. Um, and George said uh, he was born in Queens, New York, but is currently living in Los Angeles, California, with his partner and child. Um, that was Remix by George Morales. Um, let's do one more. I have two people lined up. Uh, Lee Woodman and, and Cynthia Ann Cashman have call, or want me to call in, so... Uh, We'll do one more open mic poem, and then we'll, we'll move over to Skype, which will be fun. I love the Skype. 
Uh, next up, we have ah Meg Eden. Um, now, let's see. Meg Eden, she lives living right now in Severn, Maryland. Uh, her work's been published in a bunch of magazines, including Rattle, a bunch of times. Um, she's the author of five poetry chapbooks and the novel Post High School Reality Quest, and the forthcoming poetry poetry collection from which this poem uh, comes from, Drowning in the Floating World. Um, you can find her at Megan Eden, Meg Eden Books, M-E-G-E-D-E-N Books.com, or on Twitter at Confused Narwhal. And she's been published in Rattle a bunch of times, including some poems from this book, which is coming out, Drowning in the Floating World, which centers around the 2011 um, Tohoku earthquake and the Fukushima power plant disaster. And this poem right here, um, All Summer I Wore, was previously published in Tinderbox Poetry Journal. So here she is, Meg Eden. All summer I wore. All summer I wore dead girls' dresses. I wore dresses I found on the shore, in now empty homes. I wore the sun. I wore the muddy water that carried my neighbors' bodies. I wore the boat that rose up to become a mountain. I wore the bodies of beach dolphins. I wore washed-up Chinese newspapers and Russian bottles. I wore melon crates. I wore a government handout blanket. I wore the unclaimed backpack of an elementary boy. I wore my great-grandmother's lost tablet. I wore the names of my classmates etched in my arm. I wore altars to washed away gods. I wore a uniform from another city. I wore the laws of my father. I wore the smile girls are expected to wear. I wore the dead girls whose dresses I stole. I wore the kappa who reaches out of the lake trying to pull me under. I wore a new gospel as my shoes. I wore driftwood and got dressed for the ocean. So that once again, that was Meg Eden reading All Summer I Wore from her book, which is forthcoming, Drowning in the Floating World. And uh, I think we might uh, have Meg feature on this episode if, or on this show if she wants to, because uh, I'd love to hear more about that book about Fukushima and the earthquake um, the poems we published were great by her. If you if you just go to rattle.com and uh, look up Meg Eden in the search bar, you'll find a, a few poems by her. I think we've published maybe two or three. So check that out. Um, I think that is all we're going to do today for the call-in Skype, or for the call-in readings. And instead, we're going to switch over to Skype right now and um, see if we can get uh, Cynthia Ann Cashman in here. Oops. Sorry, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear the phone call. And there you are. Okay, so your mic is on. You're on. So hello, uh, Cynthia. Uh, Hi. Where are you calling from? Hi, Tim. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, thanks I'm so much. A, a poem that was um, recently published in May of this year in uh, Sparrow and Nightingale's Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Well, first, where where are you calling from? It's always nice to know. Oh, you know, I'm how... I'm originally from Minnesota. But I've moved to California because the weather's so much better oh, here. Oh, it's a great place I to be. I don't really care for winter. <laughs> I've been in Los. I've been in California. Oh, I think about ten years. Oh yeah. Five five years in LA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been here for fifteen, and we moved up to the mountains so we could get a little bit of a little bit of winter. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so what are you going to read for us? It's uh, beyond the balcony rosette. It's in three parts. The first one is Daybreak. It's a uh, Shardoma. Aurora peeps with her first blush. 
Moonbeams melt. Stars dissolve quietly to kiss light's face, now rosy risen. The second part, My Love Come Dance, is a couplet sonnet. My love, my love, come dance with me in sweet delight tonight, carefree. Soaring souls mount heavenly stairs, leaving behind sorrow, salt tears. Hearts entwined together are bright, waltzing past sunsets after light. Gleaming wings lift as angels sing, holy lord, to the wellspring king. For what is love but all divine, sustaining life, sweet nectarine? Those lips that taste of paradise, worth all the living sacrifice. My love, my love, my cherished one, love you more than the rising sun. And the third part, still night. Placid waters formed beneath the rising moon. Nightingales sang to comfort the still night. Stars aligned in formations of old, still toasting the winds that kiss the sweet waters below. It's kind of a Romeo and Juliet scene. Yeah, that's... That's gorgeous. Uh, and rhyme and meter for a change. You don't hear that all that often these days. Thanks so much. Yeah, uh, thank you. Once again, that was Cynthia Ann Cashman. Uh, thanks so much, Carl. I hope you call in again, Cynthia. Yeah, great. This was fun. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot of fun. I love love when people call in. We have one more call in. I'm going to hang out with you, so, so take care. Have yes. a great night. Okay, so now we are going to make another phone call and see if we can get Lee Woodman on the phone. Let's see. Hmm. Well, we hear you. So I will just I will just put you on, and you could read your poem as a blank screen, and that's fine too, because a lot of people will be listening anyway. So, so just give me one second, and uh, I will pull you in just audio. Okay, so you're on now, uh, but just on audio. Okay, I'm sorry I couldn't um, show up on screen, but I'm calling from Washington D.C. Of age poem, and I might help to know that I, I am American, but I grew up in India and moved to New Hampshire for the first time as a teenager. Uh, this poem is called Betula Papyrifera, first published on Vox Poetica. And Betula Papyrifera means white birch. I've never known the names of trees before, whereas you, I commit to memory. White lady of the woods for some. In India, they call you Burga. Your slender twigs chase all spirits away, inviting me to enter. At my peril, I will nestle near the myrrh of your arm, brushing the fragrance, smoothing the oil of acer. I'll mingle my voice, join the rustling of your leaves, and murmur susurrus. Come lie with me on mossy beds. The breeze carries pollen. Resins keep our blood hot. Fallen needles beckon our embrace. You are my magic spell, the graceful tree I've learned to write on. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. And once again, that was uh, Lee Woodman. And uh, we don't have her for video, but we have audio, and it's a beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing. Just like the um, the old uh, live poetry readings used to do, the old mics are really excellent. So thanks so much for doing that. I think we will um, um, we will end on Tony O'Brien, who because I see her in the chat, and she had a poem lined up um, to be read, and we might as well do it right now since. Uh, 
Tony's here. I know she's here watching. Um, so Tony O'Brien is one of the people who used to come to our physical reading at the Flint Ridge Bookstore every second Sunday for such a long time. Um, and she's an Ital- um, Italian accordionist with the Irish last name. She was born in Rome and then moved to Los Angeles, where she makes a living as a self-employed artist, perf- uh, performing musician, and professional dancer. Her work has most recently appeared in an anthology, Finding Light in Unexpected Places, Colorado Boulevard, Abstract Contemporary, and Mortar Magazine. And this poem was previously published in The Moth. And um, it's interesting, I didn't know she was a professional dancer, but I am so not surprised because she kind of dances her poems as she reads them on stage. Um, I wish you could see it, but instead we're going to see her poem here, which is Emergency. Here we go. Hi, I'm Toti O'Brien, reading from Los Angeles. Uh, My poem, the one I chose for today, is called Emergency. It was published on the Moth, issue 37. And if love is love is love, then love is the slice of frosted cake sitting on the silver spatula he is holding, steady wrist, reaching arm, the cute wedge he has cut for a line. The phone rings. He freezes. If love is the thin strip of green on her summer dress, or the elegant stretch of her body smoothly espousing the lawn, then her body is a highway long and short as it drives in a daze. The light sundress, remember? Thin line, color of sweet olive, coiling now to surround the china of the saucer, bone white, with a listle of gold. If love is a body, is a body. As he drives, hands clasped on the wheel, heart hushed, brains on mute, waves relentlessly lick the sand, foam like sugar, like whipped cream on his fingers. Her lips. Yeah, so that was Todi O'Brien reading her poem, Emergency, the Los Angeles poet. I'm so glad to um, have poets from our old reading series coming and finding us online, too, because I really miss everybody there. It was such a great reading series. Uh, Thanks so much for for sending that in, Todi. And that's going to be all for today. I have a few people who are left on the pre-recorded open mic, but we'll just do those next week um yeah so we'll do jonathan humble and uh sarah simon uh first next week among the among the poets okay so anyway so that was the show for today i really hope you enjoyed it i had a great time hope you did too i learned a lot uh as always from richard gilbert um check out his book uh one more time his book was uh Poetry as Consciousness, um, Haiku 4, Space of Mind, and an Ethics of Freedom. And if you thought our uh, our discussion today was complicated, this book is really deep and complex and this kind of thing. Like, you want to read those haiku over and over again, and hopefully listen to, you know, Richard's haiku that he read toward the end, I think I would recommend uh, rewinding and, and playing them over and over again and thinking about them for a long time, because they're all that kind of depth of, of poetry. Um and, and the book is kind of that way too, so 
So that was Richard Gilbert's book. Um, thanks so much for him, and thanks to everybody who called in. We had three Skype open micers. We had, I think, five uh, pre-recorded, so that was perfect. And uh, next week, we will have Kim Dower plus an open mic. That's Tuesday, September 3rd at 9 p.m. Eastern. She, her newest book from Red Hen Press, all her books come from Red Hen Press, is Sunbathing on Tyrone Power's Grave. If you don't know, Tyrone Power is an actor who is buried at the Hollywood Forever, I think it's called, Cemetery. And um, that is her book. And uh, we'll talk about that, and we'll do a lot more. This, this one was a much different reading than normal. This, this was a more of a discussion than, than most of our episodes are going to be. Most of these are going to be readings with an open mic. But sometimes it's worth talking about different things. And we'll try different formats and see what works and what people enjoy listening to. But thanks so much for tuning in. Please do click like and uh, share this with your friends. Let everybody know that we're doing this. I think it's a lot of fun. I'm going to enjoy doing this every Tuesday night. And I hope you join me too. Um, and I will see you next week.